better when the microphone is on to be with you? Like now, I feel much better about this than I did four seconds ago. Uh, we are uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 14. So if you have a Bible or your phone or an iPad, uh, you're welcome to turn there. We are very close to being finished with the Gospel of Mark. It's been about a year and a half, actually, that we have been um, studying this Gospel. And we'll finish it up this month before we head to uh, our Advent sermon series in uh, the first Sunday after Thanksgiving. So uh, we're getting close, and you know that we're getting close because Jesus is really close to the cross in this narrative. And in this particular story, it is the place where Jesus joins together with his own disciples, his 12 disciples, to celebrate the Passover meal, which was not only for them, has now come down throughout history to also be for us. And so that is what we're going to read about here. In Mark chapter 14, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this meal uh, that you have given to us. Thank you for feeding us both with your word and with the Lord's Supper that you instituted. I pray that you would strengthen us with both of those today in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an article uh, a couple weeks ago about somebody who had developed an app. I don't think this is particularly new. It's just that I'm slow to learn about these things. Somebody who had developed an app, and I think it was in kind of larger, you know, kind of more densely populated cities like New York or San Francisco, but you could go on this app, and it's kind of like an Airbnb for, you know, dinner parties or something like that. Uh, somebody would say, I'm going to cook a meal. I've got room for eight people. You can go, it's on the Upper West Side, and you can go onto the app, and you can register to go and join a dinner party with strangers at somebody's apartment. 
I can't decide if this is the creepiest thing I've ever heard or the most awesome thing that I've ever heard. Uh, but you can do that. And it reminded me of uh, a story that I read a, a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago now, about this retired couple in Paris that had a, a house there in the center of Paris. They had a, a courtyard in their house, and they would every Sunday afternoon for lunch uh, prepare a meal, and the first 12 people that showed up, they would serve this meal to them. And it was, you know, they would cut fresh flowers, they would set the table, they would provide music. It was really a beautiful thing. And it became so popular that they actually had to stop it over time because it was, even though it was only a word of mouth deal, it became so popular they couldn't sustain it. But I think there's something powerful in those stories, you know, of loneliness and alienation that we feel, some of us pretty intensely right now. We've all felt it, I think, in some ways in the last nine months, if not even longer than that, of, you know, of experiencing a meal with other people. Maybe somebody's spouse had just died. And they get sad every single time they sit down at their kitchen table and look across their table and their loved one isn't there. Or maybe somebody's new in town and just needs to meet some people and, and wants to make, make some friends. Or you know, maybe somebody's struggling with a broken relationship and just needs some community to help them through it. This couple, they were adept at facilitating conversations among strangers. They would make it beautiful. And so at the end of the day, these strangers would leave their house having eaten together as friends. There's power, I think, in a meal that is presided over by a gracious host. In Mark 14, what we see is Jesus presiding over the Passover meal for his disciples. He sends his disciples out to procure a room in someone's home, and it unfolds just the way that Jesus says that it's going to. But then he does something surprising. He transforms this meal. He transforms the Passover meal to make it about him, to make it about himself. And it's about celebrating a promise that is kept and looking ahead to a promise that is made. So first, this is a meal that is celebrating a promise that is kept. And here we see the meaning of the meal. The so-called Last Supper is familiar to a lot of people in the world not necessarily because they are familiar with the biblical account of this meal, but because they're familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's uh, picture of this meal that's painted in that mural in Milan of the Last Supper. But what's happening here? Well, something important to understand is that this meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples is not an innovation. He's not inventing this. This is something they have done their entire lives. They're Jews who have been celebrating the Last Supper every year, not the Last Supper, but the Passover, every year of their lives. God himself commanded Israel to keep the Passover meal on a yearly basis as a way for them to remember that they were once slaves in the land of Egypt, but God set them free by the deliverance, by his own deliverance. Maybe you're familiar with the story from the book of Exodus. Moses approaches the Egyptian pharaoh nine times and tells him to let his people go to the wilderness so that they may worship him. Nine times Pharaoh refuses to do that. Nine times God sends plagues to them and those plagues foreshadow that final plague that comes the tenth time that Moses approached Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no. That tenth plague was the plague of the death 
of the firstborn. And God had commanded all of the, the households of the Jews in Egypt to sacrifice a lamb, to paint the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of that house. And when the angel of the Lord passed throughout the land of Egypt, he would pass over the homes where the doors were painted with the blood of the lamb. And here's something that's often overlooked in that story in Exodus. Nobody escaped God's judgment. He did not just pass over the people of Israel because they were good people. He did not just pass over the houses of the Jews because they were Jews. He only passed over the houses of the Jews because they had made sacrifice and the blood of the lamb was on their doorposts. If they had failed to do so, their firstborn child would have been killed as well. Each household had a death. Nobody escaped God's judgment. The hope for salvation was trusting in God's appointed sacrificial provision. It was either the death of a child or it was the death of a lamb. And so every year since that time, the people of Israel would celebrate this event at a meal with someone presiding using a prescribed menu. It, there were no innov- there's no liturgical innovation in the Passover meal. The meal is set and the words that, is, that are used in the scene to illustrate what was happening and to remember the lives of God's people, that was set as well. The Passover meal was the same every single year on purpose. Except for this year. Some new stuff happened. This year, the table that Jesus presided over was different. And we see it first with the bread. The Passover bread is unleavened bread. It was made with haste because they were simply supposed to gather their bread up and leave when Pharaoh let the people go uh, into the wilderness from slavery. And over time, yeast had also come to represent in biblical terminology pervading sin in our lives. Sin could start with something small in our hearts, but if, we're left, if it's left unchecked and it's left unrepented for, it can grow into deeper sin, actionable sin. It's all very familiar, the Passover with the bread. The head of the table would pass bread around, and that bread was representative at the time of the suffering of the people of God, first in the slavery in Egypt, and then when they were surviving upon bread in the wilderness. So it's all very familiar. It's all the same until Jesus says this. And this is crazy talk. Take, this is my body. Now, over 1,000 Passover meals had been celebrated from the time of the Exodus to this time. And not once had anybody ever said that. Not once. Who would say such a thing? This is my body? Well, Jesus would. So what's he saying? He is saying that for over a thousand years, that bread had represented the suffering and the affliction of God's people. But now, it represents not their suffering, not your suffering, but my suffering. This is the bread not of your suffering. This is the bread of my suffering. I am the true Israel It is my suffering. When you eat of this bread, you are not simply remembering the sufferings of the people of Israel. You are participating in the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, which is where he serves as a substitute. So the judgment of God 
passes over us and falls on him. Someone always dies in the Passover, you see. Always. So Jesus is saying in this meal, look, either it's you because of your sin and your rebellion, or it's me also because of your sin and your rebellion. If you participate, Jesus says, in my suffering through faith, my death covers you from God's judgment. And you'll live. That's the bread. And next, the wine. Jesus, when he passes around the wine, calls it the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, we know from his death on the cross that Jesus did die. He was pierced uh, with nails. His side was pierced by a sword. And we know from the Passover that it was the blood of the sacrificial lamb that was painted on the doorpost of one's house that caused the angel of the Lord to see and caused him to pass over that house. Now, when John the Baptist saw Jesus in the wilderness approaching him, he said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God, but what's he talking about with this word about the covenant? Well, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties that stipulates blessings for fulfilling that agreement, but consequences, negative consequences, for not fulfilling it. And in the ancient world, so many things were graphic in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, when someone was to make a true covenant, a true promise, an oath that was to be kept, what they would do is that they would take an animal, they would sacrifice it, and they would cut that animal in half, and they would lay the two parts of the animal on each side. And the person making the promise would walk between the animal that was cut. And basically what they were saying is this, if I do not keep my promise, may I be like this animal. May my blood be shed like the blood of this animal. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying something radical. Jesus himself is fulfilling the covenant promise of salvation through his death on the cross. No longer are animal sacrifices required to to, to temporarily assuage God's wrath. Jesus fulfills the promise of the whole Passover with his death on the cross. He spills his own blood. And that blood alone provides you shelter from the wrath of God And brings you into his family. You see the gospel is not only that Jesus forgives your sins. The gospel is also that Jesus is not mad at you. Did you know that? Did you know that God is not mad at you? If you have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God brings you into his family. That he treats you as a son or a daughter. That is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. So that's the meaning of the meal. It points to a promise that is kept. But there's also a promise that is made. And here we see the message of the meal. Now, what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted in this passage, it's not haphazard. It's so rich and so powerful that as great a theological mind as John Calvin, after writing, I don't know, 75 pages or something about the Lord's Supper in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, summed it all up at the end by saying, I don't know, I'd rather experience than understand it. I really appreciate that about him. So what is it that you and I experience when we have this meal? Well, first, we experience a present hope, and that present hope takes two forms. First, our our union with Christ, but also our union with one another. We experience a present hope in our union with Christ. 
Jesus gives a very powerful one-word instruction in verse 22. He says this, take, take. In that one word, Jesus is offering himself to his disciples. Now, it's still bread. He is utilizing actual bread in that meal. And, he's not, uh, and we're not reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus every week when we come to communion. He offered himself up once for our salvation, as the author of Hebrews says. But Jesus is actually making it clear that we are participating in his death on the cross when we take and eat that bread, which is his body. That the Holy Spirit is at work uniting us to Christ by his grace and his power. Take, grab hold of the bread of life by faith in Christ. Take Christ in. Be strengthened by him when you eat the bread offered to you in the Lord's Supper. We also experience present hope in our union with one another. That's part of the power of our celebration of communion. Not only is Jesus reorienting the Passover meal to apply all of the old covenant promises of God to himself, he is also reorienting us to our understanding of what is an enduring family. What is the family that endures into all of eternity? It is the church, the people that God is creating from every tribe and nation and language under heaven. So the family of God gathered around the table, presided over by Christ, it's a powerful image. And it's something that I've been thinking about over the last nine or ten months because this is something that has been uh, not lost, but it is something that has been it has been damaged, I think, over the last nine or ten months. I mean, by necessity, I would say. Uh, for all of us at the beginning, and for some still. Now, I'm going to take a, a risk here, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to just try to talk really frankly out of love for you, and I hope that you will receive it as love for me. And I don't think I would talk about this if I hadn't been a pastor here for a long time. Because I want you to trust, to trust that you hear what I'm saying and, and not hear what I'm not saying, which I've said a lot recently. I don't, know why, I don't know what it is about the Gospel of Mark. So don't hear what I'm not saying, you know, please, in this. Um, but I have a general pastoral bent concern, and that is that there are, like, there are a couple of reasons um, to remain away from the family of God during this time. One is good and necessary but one is a little bit of a struggle. There is the potential, obviously, that you are protecting your health, that you are protecting uh, the health of your family, that you are caring for loved ones who are particularly vulnerable in this time, or you're a medical professional, or you're a teacher, um, and you feel ex- you, you're exposed to a lot of different things, and you want to be really careful about where you bring that. That is a beautiful thing. That is a good thing. Everybody is responsible enough to make their own decisions about, uh, 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 about what they do in you know their their life during this time but there's another sense in which um, it is easy if we are unthoughtful about it it can be easy if we're unthoughtful about it to essentially to re-engage in every other aspect of our life okay 
So, you know, it's the fall. Your kids are all back in school. Maybe your office is open. Maybe you're going back to work. Uh, maybe you're visiting your favorite restaurants. Maybe your kind of safety net of friends has kind of expanded to pretty much all of your friends. You know, generally speaking, you're just kind of, you're just doing life as disrupted as it is, you know, kind of during this time. So you're all in, but it's been easy to develop a habit of essentially um, making the gathered life of the church a periphery to your life. And I think that's particularly easy for us in Houston, um, in, in this part of Houston, because we really value the family. I value my family. I want you to value your family. I want you to value your family. But what we often do if we're not really thoughtful about it is that we make this we make our individual families the centers of our universe and we take and we allow everything else to kind of circle around that uh, so whatever it is that sort of um, you know kind of accompanies that whatever it is that 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 helps us with that we lean into those things uh, but if it's uncomfortable with that if we're if it's not helping us kind of make the, our, our family the center of our universe we lean away from it. Um, and I think that if we're unthoughtful about this, I'm actually not talking to you about your actions right now. I want you to believe that. I'm actually th- talking about what you're thinking and what's going on in your heart. Because if what is going on in your life is, I want to care um, for my family, my health, the health of the people around me, the health of the people that I'm exposed to, and I'm consistent in that, in the way that I'm kind of going about my life, I think that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. But if you've simply kind of gotten out of the habit over the last nine months of church and it's become easy not to be a part of the life of the family of God, and I, I, I'll tell you something, I'm gonna, this is confession time. If I were not a pastor, I think a lot of times on Sunday I'd be thinking, you know what would be nice right now? It would be nice for me to wake up five minutes before the live stream, pour some cereal, and kind of hang out on the sofa. And I'd be, I I would like that. And that's okay. You know what? We've been doing that. That's okay. But it's not going to sustain you for the long haul. It won't sustain you for the long haul. Because God is not only creating individual families. God is creating a family called the church people from every tribe nation and language under heaven to worship him Um, and the the local church that we're a part of or if you make vows to that's a microcosm of that larger family so uh, there's a lot of things about that that I can't say one of which is also that you may not be able to worship um you know, because the place that you're worshiping is not open. We have sister churches of people that we love who can't go to their church because the place where they meet is closed. My own children in Austin cannot go to gathered worship because the facility where their church plant meets is closed. And, and, and so we should be thinking creatively about ways to kind of create that community and that worship and, that, and, that, and, and the life of the church even if we can't do it all those ways. And so what I'm asking you to do is not think only about your actions but think about your heart. Are you missing that gathering? If you're not able to be a part of it, are you longing for it? Are you, are you, are you, are you hoping for that day? Are you, or have you thought to yourself, this new rhythm that has been created 
that is essentially a churchless life is not that bad of a rhythm. I really do wonder, uh, you know, if in June or July, in this part of Houston, and I don't mean right, right here, like this part of Houston where most of us are, are coming from, if we're not going to look up and find a, a surprising amount of our city to be de-churched um, and okay with it because they've simply developed new rhythms in their lives. And what that is, what's that going to mean for their spiritual lives and what's that going to mean for the mission of the church? All of those uh, kinds of things. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus is gathering to himself a people. He is showing us both union with Christ and union with his body, uh, a, a vital body that we all play a role in. He's also building a people for a glorious future, and that's the last thing that we see in this meal. It's a meal that is, we, 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 we receive present hope um, based upon the certainty of a glorious future. Jesus says something very powerful in verse 25. He says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, this points to two things. First, that Jesus' death on the cross is imminent, and he knows it. But second, the disciples didn't understand this, but we have more information than they do because we're on the other side of it. What's Jesus actually saying here? He knows that he's going to die, but what's he saying? I will drink wine again. That's powerful, isn't it? I'm about to die, but I will drink wine again. When I drink it with you, in a present physical reality, in the new heavens and in the new earth. When we experience this meal by sight and not only by faith. That's the reason that we celebrate communion on a weekly basis at Christ the King, which is why it is that we're trying to be as creative as we can to, opportunity, to, to offer opportunities for communion even those who are unable to gather with us presently because it's a powerful meal that points us to a glorious future. I have a pastor friend, a good friend in New Orleans. He moved to New Orleans, uh, as John Calvin would say, as luck would have it. Nobody gets that joke. John Calvin, predestination, you know, it's not luck, you know, it's, uh, uh, okay. It's been heavy, okay? That was meant to be a moment of levity and all this heaviness. So, um, anyway, as John Calvin would say, as luck would have it, he moved uh, to New Orleans two weeks before um, Hurricane Katrina struck and pretty much destroyed the city definitely destroyed the part of the city that his church was in and scattered his congregation all to the four winds and a lot of people stayed scattered, in fact. And he didn't know what to do. He's like, should I quit? I mean, what, what, what happens, you know, what happens when you, have a, when you don't have a church, you know, when you don't have people? And he decided to do two things. One was that the, he committed himself and his church um, to essentially uh, rebuilding New Orleans and for several years, that church hosted teams that was dedicated to uh, repairing flooded homes. In fact, I took a team of Christ the King folks way back in the day at Christ the King in probably 2006 uh, to serve in New Orleans to do that. But the second thing that he did was a little bit crazier and more personal. He committed himself to eating a meal at every non-chain restaurant in the city limits of New Orleans. So like Applebee's and Chili's don't count, but like kind of every 
individual restaurant does count. It is crazy what he did. This is no joke. You can Google. Uh, there's a documentary about this. It's called The Man Who Ate New Orleans. Uh, you can Google it. You can get it on DVD. I'm not making this up. You can watch this. Uh, but during this quest, my friend became friends with a New Orleans chef named Tori McPhail, who until just this past fall was the chef for many years at Commander's Palace in New Orleans, one of the most famous restaurants in that city, one of the most famous restaurants in the world. It's a restaurant that Paul Prudhomme and Emeril Lagasse both served as chefs in. And my friend became friends with the chef. So when he would come to that restaurant, one of the most famous restaurants in all of the world, Chef McPhail would come out of the kitchen, he would give him a big hug. If my friend had brought some friends from out of town or something, he would welcome them. He would give them a table where, he could, where they could look out at the kitchen and where they could see the chef at work. He was always experimenting with new ingredients and stuff, so he would always be bringing out little morsels for them, like, hey, uh, I'm kind of working this thing up. Tell me what you think about it, you know, these kinds of things. In a sense, he was essentially treating my friend like he was a member of his family, at this great and glorious restaurant. And so when my friend would leave Commander's Palace, he would never leave hungry, ever. And he would never leave not feeling loved. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus himself welcomes you to his table. He greets you by name, gives you a hug, and he's not a snob. He welcomes your friends as well. All who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll serve you, and when you leave his table, you will have been renewed in the grace of the Holy Spirit. You will know that you have been loved by an undying love. So come to the table of the Lord. All who are hungry, come and eat. All who are thirsty, come and drink. Your Savior welcomes you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for welcoming us to your table and serving us and strengthening us. Father, we pray that you would bind us together and continue to bind us together by your blood and your grace. Even during these difficult times that we live in, they're not the most difficult um, that your people have lived through throughout history. We pray, Father, that you would sustain us as you sustain them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.